0: CD's Mindset. I'm Michelle Najella. And I'm Katherine Ambrose. We are on a mission to help you identify what consumer science innovations have a lot of untapped value or are too good to be true.
1: So join us for more curious conversations as we try to make sense of the complex but fascinating world of human behavior. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mindset. It is your hosts, Catherine Ambrose and Michelle Nagella, and we are here chatting again with the lovely Linnea Gandhi. How are you doing today, Lania? I'm doing great.
2: It's so good to see both of you. It we enjoyed awesome. our
0: talk so much, and had so much more to talk about that we really needed to do this again and <laughs> extend the conversation because there's more to touch on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just to, in case somebody missed our previous episode, can you give a, and I know you don't like Twitter, but a tweet sized
2: explanation (laughs) as to who you are. You warned me about this. And so I thought about it. So I I cheated on that. Um, I guess I would say applied meta scientist ish because I don't think I qualify as a scientist yet, maybe in two or three years.
0: No, you totally do. Oh, no. So
2: what that means, <laughs> I, I research, I, I teach, um, I do a little bit of speaking and consulting, but not as much anymore on applied behavioral science, a lot about how to bring the science out into the world, psychology in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, really am keen on how we do that science. And so more and more of my work is on methods and meta science.
0: And where do that- you do your work?
2: I do my work right now at Wharton in the PhD program. And can you talk a little bit more about what lab you're at at Penn? I'm at the Computational Social Science Lab. It was founded by Professor Duncan Watts just a couple of years ago, around the time that I came uh, to Penn.
1: Oh, perfect timing. Yeah. And so just before we dive a bit more into the specific work that we do together, um, what is the lab's overall objective and what intrigued you to join it?
2: Yeah, I'm so happy and thrilled to be part of this lab. I I haven't seen anything like it. It, The objective is to identify big, hairy problems in the world, such as COVID-19 and its spread, Mm -hmm. fake news, how science is organized and used, which will be the project we talk about today and use methods uh, and theories from computer science, statistics, and social science, for me that means psychology, to try to solve them. So a lot of our work is interdisciplinary, involves people not just in our lab, but other groups and other universities, and has a bunch of infrastructure behind it because we're taking in a lot of data or producing a lot of data and creating these pipelines for managing it and then analyzing it and then sharing it back out in the world to try to solve these big hairy problems. Yeah. And so you, and you kind of alluded
1: to it a little bit, so I'm just going to call it out. We do something called the nudge cartography. We're part of the nudge cartography lab. What is a nudge
2: cartographer? And
0: I think we might have to take a step back. What is a nudge?
2: That's fair. Because some listeners
0: might not know.
2: I have huge cursive knowledge because I've lived with the idea of nudging for almost a decade now. So a nudge has a formal definition, which is uh, often a small change in the choice environment, you know, the, the processes, maybe the tiny little bit of incentive change, um, the layout of something you're doing that might help shift you to the better choice or the better decision, as might be defined by you. So, how do we get people to save for retirement? Let's change the default setting in their 401k plan. Things, things like that might be considered a nudge. And it, it uses a lot of ideas from psychology to try to then change these environmental elements that you might interact with every day. Awesome. And so now, what do you mean by by cartography? (laughs) So I made that up, uh, full disclosure. Uh, I've been working on this for, yeah, over, yeah, about over a year now. Um, Cartography comes from this idea of research cartography, which our lab is working on, which is a different approach to producing research. And so I've blended the two ideas together to say nudge cartography because you could do research cartography as we define it with any topic. So what, what does nudge cartography mean? It means we're trying to map, like literally build a map of the theoretical space of nudging by taking all the different experiments that are out there in academia and also actually with practitioners. There are so many great consultancies and groups running experiments of their own, put it all in one place, do some of our own experiments even to add data and then help people navigate that space by dimensionalizing it. So you can actually literally think of it as a map with coordinates mm-hmm. that you could you know and in, in geography you could navigate. We do the same thing, but those coordinates are dimensions such as features of the behavior or features of the people or features of the nudge that could help you you know basically filter and search through to figure out what works, when, where, and how. Um, in different behavior change settings. It's very ambitious. <laughs> uh, yes, that's usually the word I get. They go, people say, oh, that's a really ambitious project. Um, I never want to do it, but I want someone else to do it. And so,
1: <laughs> you're so that you're, we're, we're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm curious what inspired you to focus on nudge interventions because behavioral science is not just nudging. We did a whole episode on that, but I I want you to explain, why did you decide to focus, put your lens there?
2: Well, I love the idea of research cartography in general. Um, So I'll I'll give you a little bit of a spiel about that and then how I got to nudging. So we've been talking about research cartography in the lab because we find that every study, doesn't have to be an experiment, but a paper that's out there or a study that's out there, they're kind of like apples and oranges, whatever field you're in. They have even if they're trying to answer the same general question, like what gets people to save more for retirement, they may measure saving more for retirement differently. They're using different populations. They're using different interventions. They're doing it in different countries. And when you sit back and you try to get the studies to talk to each other, just give you an answer, it's really, really hard because they're written in prose, they're unstructured, they're not really building on each other like building blocks. Mm And so research cartography is the idea of either in the production of new research or in organizing past research, which we're doing as well, you you come up with a design space. You say, what are the coordinates that are important? What are the, is it geography and country? Uh, Is it uh, the education level of the people involved? Is it the category of nudge or whatever theory, you know, I'm using? What are those coordinates that create a design space? And then every new study I run, or every study I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, I start mapping across those coordinates so that I can actually start to run models mm-hmm. that control for all these different potential moderators that look for heterogeneity in the design rather than just kind of bucketing them together at a high level and saying, this is sort of how right. they a, like, this sort of is saying this as a collection, but it's not precise in Very any qualitative. quantifiable way. Yeah, like a lit review does what I'm talking about right now, but it's extremely qualitative. Mm -hmm. Um, The inclusion of different studies depends on the goal of that paper, right? They can can choose what they need. So we're really trying to take as much of the full space as possible and navigate it. Um, We call this commensurability. So if, if anybody's used to the credibility revolution or the replication crisis in psychology and social science, This, we hope, is a solution um, to the idea where, you know, you get two studies that purportedly study the same thing, and then they come up with different results. And so you say, oh, one must be a false positive, or one must be a false negative. Often, though, it's that they're actually heterogeneous. One of those coordinates, one of those dimensions is actually different. Mm -hmm. It's a different population. It's a different setting. And oh, wow, when we replicate it and hold those constant, it works. So do you have this problem of hidden heterogeneity? that gets people thinking that we don't have generalizable research. But really it's because we haven't harnessed that heterogeneity in a a systemized way. So we kind of call that like, there's no language for describing all these differences between papers, which is literally the definition of commensurability. Mm -hmm. Like there's, we do not have uh, quantifiable words and codes to get two papers to talk to each other. So research cartography is a method to get to commensurability in social science. So that's my long-winded explanation of that that idea of research cartography. I love this idea that the lab has produced and we've got a couple projects on it. I'm doing it in the nudge space or the choice architecture space more broadly because that's my background. I have Mm -hmm. 10 years of applied work in it. I I know it really well so as I develop this new methodology with the lab I want to start from a place of expertise where I can bring in students like Catherine in the MBDS program. I can call in favors from my friends, you know, academics and otherwise, to really get them to work together to build this process. I don't think I could do it if I didn't have that Lego.
0: It's interesting. This does seem to be a bit of a movement, um, not only in this space and what you're doing, but we were just recently at a conference called EuroSense and there was a professor there, um, Professor Velasco, he's at the Norwegian uh, Business School in the marketing uh, area. Um, him and Hans van Tripp were talking about this about really having some sort of data repository um, and they're calling it the com focus, where they're trying to make public-private partnerships to you know give kind of like a larger way to harmonize measures. Yeah. Whereas if you just look at, you know, sensory sciences in general, we have a, a real problem with harmonizing measures. Just the idea of food neophobia, for example, mm-hmm. um, has 20 different ways of measuring neo- food neophobia. And so you can't actually take all that data and, and smush it together and, you know, be able to say that, oh, food neophobia in, um, you know, the Netherlands and compare it to food neophobia in Spain because they did these two different,
2: yep right? Tower of Babel.
0: Yeah, yeah, it
1: really kind of is. And so my question, though, is, while while you were discussing this idea of creating the living map, and I know that we've spoke about it, but I do want to touch on it. What is the plans for because even though this is a living map, science is living as well. And there's new papers being published. There's new papers being retracted or old yeah. papers being retracted, moving what, targets. <laughs> yeah. What would you do to keep this updated? Because even if you had it, say, say we managed to look at everything up to a certain point, it's, it's already outdated. <laughs> right. So yeah, what yeah. is your plan
2: there? Like what's the thought? Methodologies
0: thoughts? get improved upon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I, uh, I guess t- Two responses to that. One in the near term is we have a really strong set of inclusion criteria, and we're, we're beginning pretty rigid to, to begin with because, well, in part, while we have 20 to 30 students helping us, we're still a discreetly small team. Yes. We can't map everything at once, so you have to prioritize. Therefore, we're prioritizing with studies that uh, meet a very high set of inclusion criteria, high bar, which is inspired by um, actually a paper that just came out by Yuri Simonson, Joe Simmons, and Leif Nelson, the Data Collada folk mm-hmm. that critique literature reviews and, and how we just average things together. Um, and while we're not quite doing exactly what they recommend, we're following the spirit of it of, by being very rigid on what we include. Um, so we have a, I think a five-step process of filtering down studies that we put in both academic and practitioner. And within the academic one, there's a section where we ask uh, whoever is doing the mapping, to look up every single author on Retraction Watch. Mm -hmm. And if any of the authors are on Retraction Watch for a different paper or obviously that paper, we don't include the study. We haven't had a a bunch fall out there yet, but we could as we go through. Um, And then we are also including only studies that have a hundred or more uh, participants per cell. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of dropping out for that. We're also including studies that are behavior studies, so can't be stated intent, can't be hypothetical, can't be about a belief or an attitude. So we're, we're being really narrow about what we include right now since we know a big cons- consumer of this are practitioners who are mm-hmm. studying behaviors, not just attitudes and beliefs. We might relax that going forward when we have more time, um, but that's a big set of, of criteria we're using. We almost included that they had to be pre-registered, but then literally nothing was making it through. Um, So we've relaxed that, but we're tracking pre-registration. We're also tracking divergences from the pre-registration. So it's a slow process, but that's how we're sort of having like a sieve for quality right now. So right now,
0: if someone's had a paper retracted that is unrelated, you still exclude them.
2: Yes, we know that's a very harsh criterion to include. You know, at first I was starting six months ago and Catherine was joining We were mapping everything and then um, very fortuitously i suppose a big debate came out this summer around a meta-analysis that Mm -hmm. had been published Mm -hmm. in january um lots of back and forth around it in was it july i think that came out and it was in pnas where not only were they talking about um publication bias not being appropriately accounted for um or you know several papers that had been retracted having been put in it but just a lot of a lot of problems in, in the inclusion criteria not being rigorous enough. And so that really swung us to say, okay, we got to shift gears and let's start, if we're going to be taking advantage of uh, prior science, not just running new studies into this design map, which we could do, we could just start blank slate. We want to build as strong of a foundation that cannot be questioned as possible. Like, so we're being very, very rigid and then As this will grow and and go on for many years is is my hope, we can go back and add studies that don't meet though, you know, we can subsequently relax them in a systematic way, which brings me to the second thing that we're doing is we are trying to find a way to set this up over time as its own entity, its own, not necessarily lab, but it needs its own funding to be Mm -hmm. able to survive over time. So let's say we have this map and it's working and we have consumers using it, consumers being academics or practitioners, it needs to be endowed, it needs to be funded in some way so that we can have people constantly updating it and, and, and adding in new studies, either creating incentives for academics and practitioners to do so, which we've played around with, or having a team of, you know, three to five people staffing to it. So we've, we've had a generous grant from AI Analytics at Wharton, it has been fantastic, really getting us off the ground. But if any of your listeners <laughs> want to help sponsor this research for years to come, Come um, talk to me because that's like Wikipedia of sorts. It's got to, yeah. got to get. And it is and it. very it's
0: important. Like, I mean, that conversation yeah. around um, behavioral science and, and nudges—the the meta uh, analysis that was done this past summer—we did talk about uh, on on the podcast. And so, you know, it is something we can potentially reference. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it, it was—it had a big reaction, right? Um, with some people, you know, thinking that you would had to throw everything out, which is right. just simply not true, right? Yeah.
2: Right. Right. I think you're doing a disservice to the field. Um, I know in our our other podcast, we talked a little bit about questionable research practices and and fraud and license. At the end of the day, though, there's a lot of good stuff out there. It's just not organized well. It's like you're you're walking into a library where the books are all over the floor. Let's uh, go invent our Dewey Decimal System and (laughs) let's create like a small foundation in the middle and then we can keep adding books and books and books and if things don't pass different criteria as we relax it, that'll all be flagged. So people could filter down to only look at something that's pre-registered or only look at yeah. something that doesn't have retractions. And I think putting them all in one place in an organized way, I don't know why, I do really find that fun. A lot of people <laughs> tell me that sounds- It awesome is fun, boring. but it,
0: there's utility to it as well. Yeah. I mean, it, in a way that you don't have to be a PhD student to be reading all of these papers because you're having to write the intro to your dissertation, right? Right. Um, You know, instead you could actually be a practitioner that could get very reliable information on something specific. That sounds important.
2: Mm -hmm. Actually, that was part of the inspiration. Um, So research cartography was a, a lab idea independent of this, but I spent a decade in consulting, much of that behavioral science consulting. And every time I made a recommendation, I had like tummy rumbles. I was like, God, I spend many, many hours doing lip reviews and I talked to experts and I did explore research. And I think this is right, but right. like, I don't know, like, did I, did I miss that one paper out there that's related? And like, did I misunderstand this other paper? It wasn't really quite the right setting or it wasn't right the right domain. And I'm making a leap yeah. there. Mm-hmm. I would you're
0: critically thinking right yeah. I mean not everybody does that so you know in the field that that we sort of play in at HGD, and, and Catherine and i play in we have people that are you know sort of sharing ideas in quote unquote neuromarketing that simply aren't true aren't aren't based on anything true and so while you know I think everybody here really appreciates the critical thinking and the thought that goes into making these recommendations making sure the studies were done correctly making sure like you're making a sound you know recommendation and conclusion and decision um not everybody does right yeah
2: although I think I mean I, I agree not everyone does um I've done a lot of sort of um uh, shopping this idea around, we are the opposite of in stealth mode. Maybe <laughs> sometimes want to be protective of their baby, but we are out there. And uh, whenever I tell this story about the, like the nerves I would have writing recommendations, the students in the MBDS program who are doing consulting, all these practitioners that I, I I know and I'm talking to, they're like, oh, me too. Yeah, you know, like, like the research process is all over the place. And if I, I a lot of it's driven by the fact that my lip review is potentially biased and unclear right. and I have to do all this organizing and we're all doing the same lit reviews yeah like, doesn't that feel like a waste or, yeah. or even these meta-analyses like um, amazing work that's done however flawed why do we have to do a meta-analysis every five years right it seems kind of insane why not just run a process where we're constantly organizing research by a shared language updating that language over time and using that as a public good that's yeah. to me seems like a I don't know if it's feasible, but it's well, desirable. I and I
1: appreciate that you're also critically thinking about like the feasibility of it as well, because there are so many implications to it. But I do want to touch on too that, you know, it, like you said, why are we doing a meta-analysis every five years? But you're putting also a lot of power into trusting the researchers that are doing the meta-analyses. So this, by, by developing this living map, it, it kind of takes away that um, authority that just a couple uh, lucky scientists or researchers get the privilege to do, and it it kind of puts it back into the field as a whole instead of just choosing select people to trust. And I think that that is also very important because it's like anything; you have a diverse sample set, you're you're going to have a bit more of a uh, a more a richer findings and a, a yeah. bit
2: more rigor. I mean, I will say one of the objections we've heard is on what you were just saying, Catherine. Of aren't you guys playing God? Who are you to define the design space? And like to that, I say, I don't think we're deities. I think we're deputies, Mm. and now we're self-nominated because we're willing to take the risk. And like I'm willing. I was gonna
0: say, it's like if you're worried about that, do something about it. Like if you're worried about you know you guys playing god on it, then why don't they participate?
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I don't think those are they're 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 um there's no malice in the state, yeah, yeah. but I think they're right, and so. Allah as is, is Catherine, you can probably attest to so much of what we do is crowdsourced. So mm-hmm. like a lot of these dimensions we're starting with in the first round of, of mapping are from talking with practitioners about well, what what are the things that they find are important? Um pulling the different students, looking at as many papers that have been done before that have typologies of nudges, yeah. um, organizing frameworks, and using all of those as dimensions. So it's not purely democratic by any means, that would be in, in really impossible to pull off, but we're trying to be transparent in everything we do, reproducible in everything we do, pilot, pilot, pilot mm-hmm. and crowdsource. So to me, I, I think of it more as like, I've taken a government job uh, <laughs> rather than uh, the job of a, a dictator and it's a public servant sort of um, role that I, I hope, and I hope that's how we sort of stay to it going, going forward, because it really should be a public good.
1: And so you did touch on a little bit of a few lessons that we we learned along the way. A big one was the the discussion around meta analyses and what to do with them. Um, what 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 are a couple other examples you could give of the lessons you you've learned from starting this project? And then also, where do you see it going? What's your prediction yeah. as to the next steps for the project?
2: Um. Yeah. So the things that. I've learned like you said I mentioned already um don't operate in stealth mode mm-hmm. um I don't no one is going to try to steal this this is not a easy thing to do and most people wouldn't find it fun and I think by being <laughs> public about it on this podcast sharing it with so many students in your program Catherine um all and all the practitioners in different academic labs I've learned so much I've pivoted a lot and I think it'll de-risk it mm-hmm. so I would say that's a that's a big learning and I was nervous about that to begin with actually I was like oh what if someone else does this? Then my whole dissertation is gone. And then I said, you know what? If someone else does this, great. If they mm-hmm. do it better, even better. Because this should exist. And I'll find something else. And like that's been a really freeing mentality. Yeah. Or join forces,
1: you know. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I don't I don't think anyone will do it. Um, the second thing was piloting. Um, yeah. your team has been so fantastic at calling out every problem. <laughs> so the, the mindset we now have is every process we build will be flawed. And the goal is. <laughs> Just to get as many flaws out as possible, especially the irreversible flaws or the ones that are costly to reverse before launching. So I'm now—that's science. Yeah. It's science. It is, but you, you know, pressure to get data to show our yeah. companies are doing well, right? It's you know, be slower, be careful, be transparent, be reproducible, be automated, all of that. Um, and then the third lesson that's I've learned cool. is to sort of be, like be honest about the prod, the first product, or the first version, is being bad. Um, like it, and that's sort of the point though. Um, so if you think back to like actual map making where I get a lot of my inspiration, the reportedly the first map of the world was done by this monk in the 1450s called Fra Moro. Um, and how did he build that map? Well, a, he was sponsored by a king. So I have a king, but I have a great lab. <laughs> so get sponsorship. So you de-risk it. But the second thing is he went and spoke to a lot of travelers. He read a lot of Journals, he read Marco Polo's journal. He mm. talked to other monks who had mapped different parts of the world at that time. Um, he even included like legends and myths in there with his own caveats about, I don't know if I'd to believe this. <laughs> and you look at what he's put together, which is this circle, right? We still thought that, uh, we also thought that the, the earth was the center of the universe at that time. And it was like this circular map, which was so interesting to see with all this annotations and drawings. Like that was his beautiful map of Mundi. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you know, centuries later, we get our world map that we've all seen in our first grade classroom. And today we have Google Maps, which is amazing. Like, and, and we are aiming for Google Maps because okay. the beauty of this sort of process is it's it's not just telling you how to get from A to B. It says, What where do you want to go from? Like, where are you yeah. looking for? And so just like in Google Maps, you can search your own destination. And it's
0: constantly evolving. You mm-hmm. can
2: search, you can search car. Yeah, they're evolving. They're taking in ways crowdsourcing data like that is to me the inspiration, but I'm always reminding myself that you are here. We're building the map of Mundi. We're taking all the scraps that exist everywhere from practitioners and academia, and we're weaving them together and we're going to make the wrong map. And that's cool. But this is the starting point to get us to Google Maps over time. And so that's also been very freeing to realize that's the step we're at.
1: I love that. I, I think that was a great analogy. And honestly, yeah. I love chatting with you. It's always so exciting to see uh, where this research is going. I Like we chatted about, I volunteer at this lab. I have since graduated yeah. from the MBDS program, but I <laughs> loved this uh, initiative so much that I, I felt inclined to continue with it and, and to join Lania on this journey of trying to reach Google Maps status. <laughs> and so with that being said, are you ready to play oh,
2: our implicit game? We have Again. 10 words. okay. My goal is to not <laughs> use adjectives as much this time. I'll try. I was just like all adjectives. Okay. I'm ready. It's all good. All right. So I have 10 words here. Are you ready to go? I'm go. Yeah. Nudges. Oh, man, I almost said poop because I was like, why would you say poop? It's a terrible. <laughs> That's OK. Go
0: with <laughs> what it. you got. We're going <laughs> oh, with God. it. All I right. have
2: dogs for those at home. So poop <laughs> is a big discussion point in our family. OK, I have
0: toddlers. It's OK. OK,
2: yeah. Go with
0: it. <laughs> Clusters.
2: <laughs> Clusters. Phobia. I don't- OK. Field experiments. Awesome. Behaviors. Adjectives. Okay. Behaviors. The-, the core of everything. Maps. Oh, so cool. Meta-analyses. Also very cool, but not perfect. Validity. Essential to everything. Hypotheses. Everything is a hypothesis. Lab experiments. I don't
1: give them enough credit. And the last word, ballroom dancing.
2: (laughs) My first really failed career. (laughs) So that was just a fun fact I, I had heard. Yeah, let's hear more body. about this real quick. Yeah. What is this? Um, okay, so I think in our other podcast, I told you my first job was as an RA, which is true. That was my day job. But I actually took that job so that I could stay in Boston and do ballroom dancing five hours a day um, at night with my my amateur partner trying to become pro, <laughs> which I massively failed at but oh, I man. was committed. Um, yeah, you can't really be pro unless you started when you were like five mm. and maybe you were from Europe, you know, it
0: just, that's interesting. You know, I used to teach Argentine tango. Oh yeah.
2: It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's great. It's a great sport.
0: It really is. It, it's so much fun. You meet so many people yeah,
2: you guys will
1: have to teach me some dance moves. I have no rhythm whatsoever. So I I,
0: I feel like you can teach anybody to dance personally. I mean, I used to teach uh, Argentine tango, which is a lot more freeform than formal ballroom dancing. Uh, and I used to teach engineering grad students at Purdue University. Uh, and I feel like if you can teach an engineering grad student to, to dance <laughs> Argentine tango, really anybody can learn. <laughs>
1: Amazing. So I want to thank you again so much for joining us today on this really exciting conversation. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about this project as well as maybe they want to participate in it? Yeah,
0: that's what I was wondering too. How can people join the movement?
2: Yeah, join please. Um, (laughs) If you have funding, let me know. (laughs) Um, We have a a website I think that will be up by the time this podcast airs um, on the Computational Social Science Lab website honestly, if you just Google CSS lab Wharton or Penn, it'll come up um, and you can find me there as well. I am on Twitter, but passively at at Linnea Gandhi. um, And I'm sure on my OID page online, you can find my email. So reach out. I'd love to talk to anybody who is sort of geeking out on um, meta science or making science better. Amazing. Are you on LinkedIn? Just so people know. Oh, I am on LinkedIn. That's more updated. Awesome. All right.
1: So (laughs) come find us. We'd love to talk. And until next time, I hope everybody takes care. Thanks for more information or updates, follow HCD research on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at HCD research, Inc. and at HCD neuroscience, subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to rate review and follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. And stay tuned for more curious conversations.